Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. Today, Tim Little is going to talk about biblical archaeology. Is that a fair assessment of what you're going to do? Yeah. We're going to talk about archaeology and its relationship to the Bible. I think that part of the content is going to rock. Okie dokie. Well, (laughs) as always, we have bad jokes and some business to tend to. We'll want to dust up after that one. (laughs) We'll have to knock the dust off the books. Books and business. Okay. There he went. Books and business. (laughs) Forcing it in there between Andy's lame jokes. Hey, hey, hey. Come on. So, Tim, uh, books and business. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to go first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm actually uh, talking about a children's book today. Uh, The title is That Little Voice in Your Head, Learning About Your Conscience by Andy Nacelli. It is is a children's book, and it's to teach children about the conscience. What I really liked about the book is is that it's uh, seeking to explain to children uh, kind of like what the Holy Spirit is doing in their hearts as the Holy Spirit convicts them of the sin that they commit. Uh, and so as a parent, I, as you read the book, and, and it's a cute little story, but you can uh, use it as a teaching opportunity to explain to your little one uh, what, it, what that conviction feels like and what it is, uh, that it's the, the conscience that has been um, violated uh, because you've broken God's law. But really what makes the book stand out that I really, really liked about it is it makes a distinction between what uh, Nacelli calls family rules and Bible rules. For example, in the story, the little kid goes over to a friend's house and the little kid comes back home and says, oh man, my friend's a really bad person because they don't uh, take their shoes off when they go into the house. And, you know, all these little family rules is how he's defined it. Um, I think a lot of times we rightfully are seeking to teach our children to obey, uh, and our children often then can become very good little uh, Pharisees and hypocrites. And so um, Nacelli really tries to teach the child and equip the parent to teach the child uh, the differences between these different sets of rules that there's Bible rules that apply to all people. And then there's just some rules that we just have in our home. And just because other people don't have those rules doesn't mean that they are worse people. So little kids book, I'd put it pretty high on the uh, Thinklings scale of recommended books. So like what number would you give it? For reading this to uh, your kid and to teach them about the conscience, I think this would be like an eight or a nine. This would be pretty high. I really like this book and would recommend it. So it might serve just to remind our listeners what the Thinkling's Goodness Scale is. Normally when you're like a 1 to 10 on a scale, it's like a 1 is a bad thing. It's like really low, it's bad. And a 10 is like the best it could ever be. A 10 on the goodness scale is like the best it could ever be, but a 1 is not bad. To be on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale, maybe go back, listen to Season 1, Episode 8. We talk about what makes a book good. And based on our recommendations in that podcast, we qualify, is the book good or not, to be placed on the goodness scale. We already say, yes, this book is good. But then once we've already decided, yes, it is good, we say, how good? 
how much good, how many goods, I don't know how the grammar works there, <laughs> but we're saying there's it's a level good. of goodness higher than other things. So a, a two has double the goodness of a one. Oh, brother. I don't know if I'd go that far. All well, right. that's just the nature so of numbers. That would be like an exponential <laughs> increase in goodness by the time yes. you get to 10. I so know. the point being... <laughs> <laughs> Math's not his strong suit. <laughs> I went to Bible college, so I know my numbers really well. And uh, I know that there are 65 books in the book of, in the Bible, right? <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, okay. so on the good and the scale yourself, like, do you have a book to share with us tonight? <laughs> I do. So just backing up. So when Tim says it's very high on the goodness scale with, to teach about the conscience to your kids, that's a really high recommendation. Yes, it is a really high recommendation because I, it's an issue that I've had even just with raising my children as I seek to teach them to obey rules, what they inevitably become is little Pharisees. And so the book really try to help, tries to help uh, um, guide you through uh, correcting this uh, Pharisaism that naturally flows out of law keeping in our children. What's the who's the author of that? Nasali Andy Nasali. Oh yeah, he's got a lot of good stuff to. N a s e l l i. Cool. Yeah. So the book that I've got is it's not really a, a book in the traditional sense. We've talked about prayer books on the podcast in the past. I think of I think really early on, Tim, you talked about Valley of Vision, mm-hmm. and that's what this book is. It's it's called Every Moment Holy, and uh, I've got a pocket edition. It's a really neat looking book, and w- what it's meant to be is like a prayer liturgy, uh, to be used in a liturgical sense. But it's for like very specific or odd scenarios in life. So it's prayers for very specific moments, like every moment. And uh, so just to read through some of the specific prayers from the contents, there's a prayer for domestic days. There's a prayer for laundering. There's a prayer for keeping of bees. There's a prayer for home repairs. There's a prayer for medical providers, for first responders, for waiters and waitresses. Uh, A really funny one here. There's a prayer for changing of diapers, one. (laughs) And then there's prayer for the changing of diapers, two. Hey, you actually might need two different prayers for that. (laughs) I think that there are two different reasons that you might need to pray. (laughs) Uh, And then there are prayers for creation and recreation. So there's prayers for sunsets, prayers for stargazing, prayers for gardenings, for competition. There's prayers for the beginning of a purposeful gathering, for the setting up of a Christmas tree, for a sick day, for the ritual of morning coffee, which I have read that one, and it's delightful. Uh, yeah, there's just a whole bunch of random things here. Uh, a prayer before you give, a prayer before nights and days of doubt, uh, a prayer for the anniversary of a loss, a prayer for those fearing failure. It's, it's just all of these things. And there's different categories, like labor and vacation, creation, blessings and celebration, petition and provision, just a whole bunch of just random prayers. And uh, I had this book recommended to me. And uh, I honestly, I looked at the cover and it just looked like a book I would want to have or read. And now that I've used it, uh, when I've, uh, there's a prayer in here for the beginning of a book. And I read that and I was like, okay, so let's read through the prayer for the beginning of a book, and then let's start a book. And you read through it, and it's it's a prayer. And the prayer is, hey, God, you, uh, this is my 
summary or paraphrase, God, use this book in my life. If I love this book, I hope I love it because it's impacted me in a way that teaches me to love you, which is, again, something we've talked about in this podcast. Um, so it's, it's a really unique book, and it's not something that you pick up and read from start to finish. But what I started doing is I've looked through the table of contents and I like mark something out. Like there's one in here, like for prayer for a campfire. And I went camping a couple of days ago and I knew, okay, I want to read that prayer when I do that. And it's just a very interesting and unique way to bring your prayer life into all of these random moments in your life. And so the the title, Every Moment Holy, like in everything I'm doing, pray and, and let God be a part of those things. So it's, unique. It's fun. And I, th- I thought it was really, it, it's really good. Um, so Thinkling's goodness scale. Thinkling's goodness scale. Uh, it's a tough one because it's just not like a normal book. Um, I, I I'll, I'll rate it on my own, like the value I've gotten from it so far. I'd say it's like a strong four to six, mm. four to six, because it's, it's not like it's really informing me or giving me a deeper understanding of something, but it, it's a spiritually effective kind of a book. Like absolutely. Sh- shaping your, yeah, I, I would say it's, it's definitely, it's definitely good and helpful and uh, can be a great tool. And, and that's how I've kind of used it, but uh, I have it sitting next to the books I'm reading. And, uh, and so it just reminds me even of its, with its presence, it reminds me to be praying about all the things that are happening in my life. So, why do you think it's beneficial to read somebody else's prayer? I don't know. Maybe just for me, it, it makes me think about why they're praying that and maybe why I should pray that. It gets me intuitively considering like the substance of my own prayer life. It's interesting that a lot of other religions have prayer books. In fact, for the Jew- Jewish people, one of their most, the regular things you'd find in, in a home would be a prayer book. I think it's, interesting how we as Christians, we don't often value those kinds of books, but um, because we we don't need a prayer book. Uh, in fact, I believe there is value to just praying spon- spontaneously. But at the same time, because we don't value a prayer book, we don't pray well. We don't pray for the right things. And so a prayer book can help us think through how to pray better. And just to clarify, you, you said it was like a liturgical thing, but you're not meaning that in like a high, ter- high church liturgical sense. You're speaking in like a liturgy, like uh, like an order that you follow, like a pattern sort of a thing, just to give you ideas or whatnot. So just for any listeners, we're not going down the liturgical well, there, route. There, there are some prayers in there that are written, and it says, if you use this in a, in a church setting or in a group setting, like yeah, there's there like you go. The, the leader reads this and the people yep. do. And re- so it's, it's written and framed in a liturgical well, like way. Read a response. The authors are a, more of a high church uh, yes. But, mm-hmm. Yes. Fellowship than we are. So I have, for my book, I'm going to talk about a book called the Advance, uh, called Advances in the Study of Greek. And it's by Constantine Campbell. He's the editor. And this is a book. Okay, hold on. That is one of the best names you could have for this type, like uh, Constantine I know. Campbell. <laughs> Like, you hear that name, and you're like, that guy has to know something about the Bible, right? Oh, yeah. It's a good name. Like, yeah. if you're going to have, like, a name to be a scholar, this is this is not bad. So um, so this is a book that's going to probably be helpful for someone who's already learned Greek. So if you're a listener and you're either learning Greek or you have learned Greek, this would be something that might interest you. If you are a pastor 
or someone who uses your Greek and you used a long, like learned a long time ago, this is maybe a good book for you to pick up and just read a little bit through. It was recommended to me by Dr. Doug Brown, the dean of the seminary, as a teacher of Greek in the college. Uh, grammars adjust over time. Like when you took English grammar in high school, there was a grammar book, and you probably got mad at it because you would write something, your teacher would say, you can't do that. And you would say, but that's how I talk, so I obviously can do that. Well, a grammar is not a a rule book like you have to do it this way. It's more of like a book of scenery. So if you have a book of scenery, you're taking pictures of the landscape and it's describing it for you in a picture, but it's not telling you this is how the landscape has to be. So grammars are descriptions. They're not prescriptions. Well, that means if we're looking back describing what we see in Greek, sometimes we might understand later that we had something wrong. And so this book is just talking about all the little things that have changed. Some of them are kind of big, some are kind of little. Uh, and so anyways, just a quick taste of some of it. Um, they're gonna, it's going to start off with a short history of Greek studies. That's very, very helpful. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff about aspect and genre, um, some voice issues. Now, it's not like your voice, but like active, middle, passive. So if you're a Greek person, if you're like a Greek reader or user, this would be an interesting book for you to pick up. Specifically for me, I was teaching the deponent style verb in Greek for a long time. And I found out later that that's not how we speak about Greek verbs anymore. And so Dr. Doug said, hey, read this book. He's got a chapter on the middle voice and deponency. And it was very helpful in sorting that out. So now when I teach Greek, we don't use deponency. We use middle terminology. So anyways, if you're a pastor or you're someone using Greek all the time, this might be a good book for you. Yeah, there was actually a time when I was subbing for Andy and I was not oh, no. up to speed on the middle voice and <laughs> deponency. And I just made a comment about how deponents are weird and you, you know, just memorize the oh my endings or something like that. And I know this means nothing to probably more than half of you. <laughs> and the students just gave me this look like, oh, what's, what's deponency? And I just like ruined like three or four students' days that oh. wanted to know everything, and they'd never heard the term. It was it was bad. Yeah, it, it was that was a good day actually. <laughs> <laughs> good times in Greek class. All right, so uh, in archaeology, biblical archaeology. <laughs> what a segue! <laughs> Can you dig it? <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> hey, his eyes rolled. I'm gonna be rolling Ladies my and eyes like this entire time. You're rolling like a, a giant boulder out of a dig site, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, brother. Okay, Tim. Biblical archaeology. archaeology. Okay, so I can say it. Archaeology. Archaeology. Uh, okay. So, biblical. <laughs> when we think of archaeology, we often have this very idealistic view of archaeology. We've seen too many movies. Uh, I'll just leave it very general. There's a specific character that we're most familiar with. But archaeology is actually very boring and dry. Uh, you're digging with uh, crude tools and destroying things as you look for little artifacts and uh, treasures. Uh, and then the archaeologist finds his stuff, and then he has to spend hours upon hours in his study writing um, and documenting the uh, finds that that are discovered. So we have a very idealistic view of archaeology, but really it's rather dirty and boring and then very tedious as 
the information is compiled. But still, we're very grateful for archaeology. We've found a lot of uh, different things, which gives us additional information on the scriptures. And there's just three different areas that I want to highlight today how archaeology can help us and it contributes to our understanding of the Bible. But then I want to just caution us with what archaeology doesn't do uh, at the end. So we'll start with what archaeology does do and how it helps us. First, it can confirm the word of the Bible. We don't ever want to use the terminology that it proves the Bible is correct. The Bible is correct. We believe in the inspired and errant word of God, and it is accurate. It is correct. But the archaeological finds do sometimes confirm things for us uh, and, and, and shed additional light on them. So like one example, we did not know where the city of Ekron was for a very long time. And through archaeology, they were, they were digging on a site, the, um, they, and they found an inscription. And the inscription states the, that there's this temple that uh, is uh, built for, from this, this one guy that donated this money and so on and so forth, and it's built here in Ekron. Uh, specifically stated Ekron. And so based upon that, it confirmed the location of where Ekron was at. And that helps us when we think through our, our geography of Israel. Uh, often, you know, we take for granted when we look at those little maps and uh, it states, this is where the city is and that's where that city is. Sometimes they're guessing and they don't really know where those cities are. But when we find inscriptions like this, we can confirm the location and then uh, we can... Um, put those cities on the map in a more precise manner. Uh, the second is that it can correct our understanding of some of the words of the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, when Noah built the ark, it states that he made the mark out, the ark, <laughs> not mark, made the ark out of gopher wood. What in the world is gopher wood? Well, gopher wood is just a Hebrew word. It's gopher wood. We don't know what kind of wood it was. Uh, it's been lost as far as what kind of wood Noah used. However, uh, well, there's another illustration of that in 1 Samuel 13, 21. By the way, that one we still haven't figured out. But in 1 Samuel 13, 21, it talks about how much the Israelites were being charged to have a plowshare or uh, the mattocks, an axe sharpened. And in, in the like some of your older translations, it'll say a pim, P-I-M. Well, all a pim is is a Hebrew word. It'd be peem, uh, would be a correct pronunciation of it, but a peem. And, and we didn't know what this even weighed, um, but they found one. Uh, this little stone, it looked like a little stone. It was actually a bronze weight, and it weighed about seven and a half grams, and it had three Hebrew letters on it, the pe, the yod, and the mem, peem. And so it confirmed for us actually the weight of uh, the peem. It's kind of interesting who makes a lot of these discoveries, these archaeological discoveries. A lot of times it's little boys. Why do you think little boys are constantly finding stuff in Israel? Because they're messing around and where they're not supposed to be. <laughs> Sorry, you said little boys, and I thought of your boys, the littles. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought of right away, too. It's little kids, okay? <laughs> they're running around. They're grabbing little stones and throwing mm -hmm. them at each other. And then one of them looks at the thing and like, there's writing on this little stone. And or they throw the rock and they hear the pot break and they're like, oh, hey, Dead Sea Scrolls. That's exactly right. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered that way. Hezekiah's Tunnel. 
I mean, it's a big, huge, scary this guy's tunnel. tunnel was found that way? Yeah, some kid went That's crazy. down the tunnel and found okay. an inscription. I don't know if this is just a level of ignorance that I have, but I had no idea that Gopherwood was just like a transliteration of the Hebrew word. We don't actually know what it is. Like, I've always just been like, so apparently they have gophers in Israel. Okay, so there it is. Like gopher wood, the wood that gophers like. I don't know, something like that. I mean, I, that's what I've always, it's some assimilation to a gopher, apparently, because it's gopher wood. <laughs> some kind of a word fallacy. Anyway. <laughs> Harold Hunter, may he rest in peace. Okay, so that was number two. So number two, yes. Uh, number two, it can correct our wording of the Bible. Some of the modern translations, they actually translate the peem, not as a peem, but as like two-thirds of a shekel. The Net Bible translates it that way. It's two-thirds of a shekel. I mean, you could translate seven and a half grams, but that doesn't work very well with a American audience. So second, it corrects our wording of the Bible. And then third, it can clarify the world of the Bible. And this is just kind of a broad one, but through excavations, they learn what people are eating, how tall they are, uh, all kinds of just random uh, details that expands our knowledge of uh, the culture um, in which the biblical authors uh, or the biblical um, time period, it, it took place. So, confer- so confirming the word of the Bible and correcting our wording Uh, of the Bible, or sometimes maybe even enlightening our wording of the Bible, and then clarifying the world of the Bible. Those would be uh, three contributions of archaeology. So I'm just going to open this one up even to you guys. Uh, What do you guys think about like limitations of archaeology? What might be maybe some of the problems with archaeology or dangers? Man, when you started talking about archaeology, I thought, oh, this is great, because in apologetics, and I teach apologetics, uh, this sort of evidence is huge. And I think one of the the key issues is depending on who you are, when you look at evidence, you are going to interpret it according to the worldview that you already have. And so as you were saying, I really appreciate what you said at the beginning. You said when we talk about archaeology, we don't say that it's proving the Bible. We say that it's, uh, did you say confirm? Was that the word? Yeah, confirm. Uh Okay. So I think that was really good and very helpful. I appreciated that. In So in like apologetics, it's a similar thought. You can look at natural theology or natural revelation, but that only does so much. You need special revelation to interpret that for you. So you're asking what's the limitations. I would say probably um, if you don't have the right interpretive framework to look at it, that could be a limitation. I could see some people where they would take the evidence according to their worldview and put it together differently. So it could be like the normal limitation. Right. Uh-huh. And we do see that all over the place. In fact, most of the archaeologists do not have a high view of Scripture. So they're going to interpret the evidence through their presuppositions. And and so that's why we're grateful that these archaeologists do spend the time in the office writing out uh, what they find. So then we can look at what they found and then interpret it through our presuppositions, the inspiration and inerrancy of the Word of God. Um, so, yeah. Um, any other thoughts on limitations? So this is really weird, but when I think about archaeology, I mean, I do like that you commented how we sens- uh, sen- what's the word you used? Sensation. Sen- it's sensational. Uh-huh. Sensationalized. sensationalized. There, there we go. Mm-hmm. I, man, I'm having problems getting words out tonight. I don't know, but 
So we we think of uh, like Harrison Ford and a whip and you know going and getting the Holy Grail and you know that's what we think of you know and it's it's just not glamorous like that right and so it's good to remind yourself that it's it's really not like that and when you were talking about that my mind went way back to I think it was Western Civ class in college just like I mean like nine years ago, 10 years ago for me. Yeah, you're and not that old, Charlie. But anyway, go ahead. That 10 years is a long time. Okay. <laughs> that's a decade. That's, that's I mean, a that's, while. That's, it's a third of my life, Tim, you know? Um, and I just remember Dr. Paul in Western Civ class talking about the need for this. It's like the Bible makes these claims and you have the majority of thinking minds in the world that just outright deny what the Bible says. And I just remember because the example he used was with camels and like the Bible referencing that there are camels in a location. And then he, Dr. Paul is like, and there are a bunch of people that are like, well, that's silly. There aren't camels in that region. And then someone goes and finds remnants of camels and it proves that the Bible was true. And he's like, you know what? We need people to go and dig up dead camels. <laughs> and, and just Dr. Paul is just, he's just amazing. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't always sleep enough <laughs> and sometimes, like, he just, it, I get the sense that he didn't, like, roll right out of bed, but he rolled right out of a book and came into <laughs> class. And just this, the things that he says are these, like, quirky, quippy little things. And it's just, I never forgot him saying that thing about those camels. Like, man, we do need people digging up camels. And, and not that we put our faith in the object or the evidence, but it does verify, you know, we're not, and he, there's another, you know, donkeys and camels, you know, maybe that'll be the title of our, of our podcast here. He, he made this other comment about, you know, you don't have to demonstrate the reasonableness to your faith to everyone, because at the end of the day, we do believe that donkeys talk when God makes them. And so people are going to think you're idiots no matter what, <laughs> but we need people to be digging up camels to show that there is some sense of reasonableness and defense to what's in the Bible. The camels one is probably coming out of the JEDP controversy uh, because um, they claim that Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch because there were no camels in the days of Abraham. Archaeologically, there was no evidence of camels in the days of Abraham. The domesticated camels were not in existence until 1000 BC, and Abraham would have been like 2000, 2050 probably when you have that episode with Abraham's servant going, taking the camels. And so anyway. And we're sure that it is a legitimate camel. It's not just the Hebrew word Kamal. <laughs> Are we the sure? the Hebrew word Gamal. <laughs> Gimel oh, is camel. Hmm. But anyway, the point being is that some guy did dig up some stinking camels and it wasn't the camel bones or anything. They found some documentation stating that camels were being used in a commercial fashion. Uh, and thus it validated that the biblical record is accurate and, and was depicting the culture of Abraham's day. Which shouldn't surprise us, it but doesn't. it's helpful. So, in like, I'm a presuppositionalist and when it comes to apologetics, and it's primarily because I think the idea of worldview is so explanatorily powerful when it comes to how people handle knowledge. You see, it's basically, when you hear the world, word worldview, there, it's hard for me to distinguish that from the way the Bible speaks about the heart. They're very similar. So I'm not an evidentialist. I'm a presuppositionalist. But what I say in classes, evidence is really hard on a worldview. 
So if you have a worldview like that where you say there's no evidence, there's no evidence, and then you find evidence, you then have to do something with that. And if it doesn't fit your interpretive scheme, it gets really difficult. It really is somebody's worldview that's impacting how they interpret that evidence. And that's why we need to be honest with the evidence that's being dug up. If you think through the archaeological process, there's a ton of information that's some's discovered, but a lot is destroyed. Because archaeology, by nature, is a very destructive discipline. I mean, they're trashing all kinds of stuff as they're busting it apart and finding things. So we don't really know a lot. Um, we might, we may have discovered a lot and we've learned a lot. That's great. But archaeology is a very destructive discipline, and the knowledge that we recover, recover is extremely fragmentary. So, um, you know, that kind of just gets into how we ought to go about evaluating these archaeological claims, which fits into this worldview. Uh, we need to understand the difference between the evidence and then the interpretation of the evidence. That's both from a liberal perspective and a conservative perspective. Some conservatives, I would contend, sometimes overstate their case with the evidence. And obviously, liberals are, are, are uh, fully tainted by their uh, low view of scripture. And, uh, and then just a big part of this is just to remain humble. So many times we think we know, and I think Andy was talking about these cold, hard facts, you know, well, what do we really know when we're digging up things and, and demolishing things? And then we got some tablet that some guy's bragging about his, his, uh, military exploits. Well, you know, we have a record of the victor's side of the story. So, that's just one side of the story. So how much do we even uh, trust that source? So we need to just be humble as we evaluate uh, these archaeological claims. So as always, we just want to end our podcast with a, a quick thought from the Word, something to hopefully sustain you and give your mind something to meditate on in a biblically enriching way. Tonight, I want to take us to Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages, but if you think about it, uh, what are you trying to be like in your life? What, what, what do you try to copy? What are you patterning your life after? This was a question that was brought home to me uh, a while ago in my life. And uh, this verse really speaks to that. So I just want to walk through it here. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God. So if you think about imitation, it means to copy, to try to look like, to try to take on the characteristics of. Those are your ideas there. So the first, what I would ask you to do as you're listening to this, just pause for a moment in your mind, maybe even pause the podcast, and just ask yourself, what are you trying to imitate right now? Look at the evidence of your actions. Look at what your heart loves. Look at what you're aiming yourself at. Like your whole of your life, what are you seeking after? What are you setting your mind on? Um, the scriptures are calling you to imitate your heavenly father to be like God. In fact, that was what we were meant to be in the beginning. We were meant to bear his image perfectly to bring him glory. Obviously, that's been tarnished by sin. Sometimes when you hear a command like be imitators of God, it can bother you. You can be frustrated. But I want to give you some encouragement. The verse doesn't end there. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So when you love someone, you invariably begin to be a little bit like them. Uh, if you've ever seen a little kid with their parent who they love and they know loves them, the little kid will try to be just like the parent. Now, as you become a teenager, 
generally that starts to change. You don't like your parents as much and maybe you think they don't like you. And it's at that point that you don't want to really be like them. But please, please consider that the truth is that God loves you. He cares about you. He loves you so much. He sent his own son to die for you. So this is not a mad, angry God pointing at you saying, be just like me. This is a God who loves you enough to sacrifice for you. And not only that, he loves you enough to sacrifice for you and continuously keep forgiving you no matter how many times you sin because of what his son did. That's the motivation you need if you want to be like God. And honestly, that's going to make a lot of other decisions you have in life about what to do. It's going to put them in a whole new light. So this week, as you walk away from our podcast and you go to live your daily life, ask yourself, who are you trying to imitate? And consider imitating God. But remember, God loves you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.